Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on cage.press.com. I'm Dana Gubby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC is back on the road this weekend for UFC 292, and we will be breaking down both of the title fights, as well as one of our favorite fights on this main card as part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. We'll also give you an underdog and a parlay that we think are going to make your wallet fat this weekend. Plus, we are talking with Kurt Hollibaugh, who is a finalist on The Ultimate Fighter and will be fighting on this UFC 292 card. And a little bit later on, we'll be talking to Contender Series hopeful Matteo Vogel, who's fighting during week four of the Contender Series. But before we get to any of that great content for you, we do have to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Game Up. Welcome to the game. Welcome to Game Up Hard Hydration, the new ready-to-drink beverage with sports drink flavor for adult drink fun. But make no mistake, this is no sports drink. It's a refreshing adult beverage with 4.9% alcohol by volume, a special blend of electrolytes, and way more than a hint of flavor. It's a drink that's, well, it's really drinkable. Should you stretch before you drink? Well, sure, it certainly couldn't hurt. Game Up is not a hard seltzer because hard seltzers just didn't work out. Game Up plays entirely in a league of its own. It comes in all your favorite sports drink flavors, orange, lemon, lime, fruit punch, and grape, and it hits all the right numbers at 110 calories, one gram of carbs. It's gluten-free, and it's got no added sugar. Game Up is for MMA maulers, urban fitness freaks, peak-bagging badasses, tough mother mothers, beer league brawlers, hot yoga hotties, high handicap hackers, committed cornhole huckers, or even just professional poolside posers who game up and get after it. Ask for Game Up wherever it is you buy beer or hard seltzer, and bring it on home for the team. Game Up brings you this episode of the Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and joining me today is Kurt Hollibaugh, who fights Austin Hubbard at UFC 292. That is the ultimate fighter finale on August 19th. So, Kurt, before we start talking about that fight all the time in the Tough House and whatnot, I I did want to ask you about the road to getting back to Tough. Because, you know, you had two trips to the UFC. Obviously, the second stint didn't work out so well. What was your mental space like going back to, you know, some of the regional shows after Ben being in the big show twice? Um, so yeah, uh, you know, sometimes you never know the road you're going to have to take. And after being in the UFC several times, right. Uh, you know, I didn't think I was ever going to go back to like a local circuit for me. It was going to be another big promotion or nothing. I was going to retire. And, you know, it was probably about two years since my last fight when I got the call for the ultimate fighter. And I'm like, you know what? I never thought that I would even be going back to the UFC or have a chance. So uh, let's go, man. I'm not going to pass up this opportunity, and I took it. And and so uh, out of curiosity, you know, obviously it's like your manager or somebody or maybe somebody directly from the UFC that reaches out. What are your thoughts when it, you know, what they're calling about is not a last-second replacement fight or, you know, something like that nature. Instead, it's going back to the ultimate fighter house after having this really long career. Um. So at first I didn't, and like you said, my manager reached out to me and he said, Hey, I just sent you an, uh, uh, ultimate fighter application to your email. He said, go fill it out, send it back. I got you an interview on like Tuesday. And I started thinking, I'm like, well, oh, damn, man, you know, is this what I really want to do? It's been about two years since I fought. I'm on the verge of maybe never fighting again because 
I'm not getting some of the opportunities that I w- thought I would get coming out of the UFC. And then, uh, you know, I got some fr- family and friends come behind me. It's like, man, you better take this. Take it and run. And I'm like, you know, all right, I'm going to do it. And we went from there. And then, so once you get in, obviously you realize it's, you know, the reason you're in there is because they're bringing a bunch of veterans back and all of that kind of stuff. When you look around the room and you see familiar faces, obviously I know you were familiar with Jason Knight, but you see some of those other guys you kind of already knew about. What was it like? Did you feel like you had to size everybody up at one second? Did you start thinking back to what you already knew about these guys? What was that feeling like once you're in the house? Yeah, um... And I guess you can call it sizing up a little bit. Of course, you see all these guys walking around, and and really, you don't know who you're going to fight. You don't know when you're going to fight. You don't know how the matchups are even going to play out at the moment. So, yeah, you're kind of looking at everybody, sizing everybody up. I remember when uh, we was out there in Vegas, they had flew us out. You know, we were in the hotel, and um, everybody that I would see that I was kind of familiar with, you know, I'd write them down on notes in my my phone. And – you know, and, and maybe that night I'll just do a little research on them, just check them out. Maybe some of the guys I'm not really familiar with, so I would look them up just just to know. So if if I was selected to fight that person, I would already kind of have a little idea of who they are, maybe who they fought in the UFC, or maybe um, what organization they was fighting in coming up for being on the prospect side. So uh, I guess you can call it sizing up a little bit. I like that. Now, they come out with those brackets, too, which they don't do in every Ultimate Fighter season, but it gives you at least a little bit better of an idea of who you're prepping for and how long you have to prep for that person. They had you listed as the number four lightweight veteran, right? Like, out of out of four. They had you listed at number four. When they revealed that, did you think to yourself of being slighted? Did you think, you know, hey, everybody always underestimates me anyway? How did you kind of deal with that that revelation there? Um, actually, you know, I, I figured I would be three or four. Um, and just from the simple fact that, you know, I might have fought some of the tougher guys in the UFC, I still didn't have the the best UFC career, right? Some of these other guys like Austin Rowe and Jason, they, they got, a you know, quite a few wins in the UFC. You know, most of them have been on their second or maybe third contract in the UFC. And uh, I've never made it off my first contract. So I figured maybe for that reason – I might have been, you know, third or fourth, and I was. I didn't, you know, I didn't think anything of it. Um, I just knew that I had to come in, and I had something to prove. I like that. Now, I'm curious, too, because you brought it up. You brought up that ridiculous strength of schedule, which for anybody who doesn't know, we're talking about his second stint being Rayoni Barcelos, Shane Burgos, Tiago Moises, which is a murderous row of people for somebody just back in the UFC off a contender series at that time to have to face how do you look back at that run? Because obviously you had like, you had bright moments in some of those fights, you know, especially in the Moises fight, but like, you know, at the end of the day, you're back here on the ultimate fighter as a result of some of those fights. Yeah. You know, um, and I knew that was a a bunch of tough fights and I did very well in those fights. And it was just, you know, crazy. Sometimes like crazy things happen, like in the Burgos fight when I dropped Burgos and then, you know, got a little reckless and wind up getting submitted, you know. Um, I just know that I fought some of the best guys in the UFC and then I know that I can beat those guys, you know, if I just tweak and fix a few mistakes and, um, you know, getting that chance to come back on the Ultimate Fighter, you know, do something, 
you know, in front of the world, alive on ESPN, like, like it's been going and, um, and doing what I did, you know, fixing some of those mistakes and getting those big wins on the ultimate fighter and ultimately going to the finale now, um, to fight Austin. And out of curiosity, you know, you mentioned the near two years off. You were starting to wonder, you know, is this going to happen for me when your manager hits you up and asks you, you know, if you want to do this ultimate fighter thing. Uh, did you feel like you were still trying to fix a lot of those mistakes? Is it easy to fix a lot of those pieces to your game when, you know, you're not really getting the feedback of a, a fight against a high-level opponent? Yeah, so even after I got released from the UFC after my second stint, I actually signed with a, a decent promotion called XFC. And uh, they had just came back and rebranded a little bit. They were paying some good money. They had a good TV deal on NBC and then uh, Fox Sports. And I was fighting right. I, I was fighting guys that weren't maybe UFC level guys, but they were still guys that had almost thirty plus fights and, and winning records. And um, I kind of went on a little tear over there because you know being in the UFC and fighting the guys that I fought it also gives me a lot of confidence to destroy guys outside the UFC that's never been to the UFC before. And you know because I feel like okay. When I go to this new organization and I got these other guys who's never fought in the UFC, I've been in the UFC, so I feel like, okay, I'm the one with the experience. I'm the one that's fought, you know, the top 15 guys in the UFC. So I was able to run through those guys in that XFC promotion. So I was actually on a two-fight win streak whenever I got the call and um, to, to be on the Oldsman Fighter. So, of course, I'm always trying to fix some of the mistakes, and I can see how – maybe having those two fights outside the UFC and trying to build another run at another big organization. Um, we're, we're constantly always working on fixing whatever mistakes you're making. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about the fights in the house, too, because obviously the Lee Hammond one was impressive, but the one I really want to talk about is the Jason Knight one, because I think going into that fight, a lot of people thought it was going to be a back-and-forth bloodbath, and to some extent it was, but, you know, on the rewatch of that, you're lighting him up. You, you know, you were getting the better of it. it. Seemed like every single exchange in that fight, and and you went from you know looking pretty darn good against Lee Hammond, although you know ha having his moments, you having your moments, picking up the finish, but like against Jason Knight, it was one way traffic for the most part. Is there some adjustment that you made that you credit to that, or was it just like you know that matchup was working for you that day? Um. So. One of the main adjustments I made going from Lee to Jason is I told myself to slow down a little bit, right? Don't get in a hurry. And I have one of my coaches back home that he's the first one to tell me as soon as I get in, because, man, I like to just go at the guy, right? So right off the go, I like to get in his face and go at him. And he's always telling me, don't get in a hurry. Slow it down a little bit. And uh, I feel like in the Lee Hammond fight, I just couldn't slow down, which, you know, I came right out, slammed the kick into his leg, and boom, taken down. Same thing in the second round. I came out, you know, trying to get in his face and, and just put too much pressure on him and getting into a hurry. So I even told myself, fighting Jason, I'm like, man, uh, I can do very well in this fight. I just don't need to get in a hurry. And I kind of slowed it down a little bit, still put that, con that constant pressure, but, you know, just controlled. And I think that's why I was able to be able to land better shots and, and have that type of performance. And out of curiosity, you know, c coming without your coaches, right? Obviously, you can't have your fight camp with your coaches here for these very important fights to your career. And, and you know, you said you kind of carried the voice of one of your coaches back home telling you what to do. 
How, how hard was it with like a whole different group of coaches and even less time to prepare with those coaches? Um, for me, it wasn't hard at all just because of the simple fact of the coaches that we had, right? We had Michael Chandler, Robert Drysdale, Ryan Bader, um, uh, Jason Strout, Sean Soriano come in for a little while, Bob Cook. And I feel like just having those type of guys in your corner just gave me a different type of confidence and motivation. Just being able, just, just knowing who those guys are, what those guys have done already. And, uh, I, I adjusted really well to them. Well, it was very clear that you adjusted well to them, especially in that night fight. Now you get off the show, you, you get to go home, you get to see your kids, you get to see your wife, all that kind of stuff. And then you're not allowed to tell anybody, right? Like, you're not supposed to tell your friends that you're going right. to the finale. You're not supposed to tell media members or anybody else that, you know, hey, I'm actually preparing for a fight in the TD Garden in Boston on pay-per-view coming up. What is it like having to go to those watch parties or getting to go, I should say, to those watch parties and knowing the outcome, knowing that you're the one who's going to get their hand raised and all of that? Well, you know, it kind of takes a little bit of pressure off, right? It's not like, uh, you know, you're showing up to fight night. And, and you just don't know how the fight's going to go, right? So, uh, you know, being able to do these watch parties and show up, and you might see some of the other people stressing out that don't know the results, but ultimately, aside, you're like, yeah, well, I don't have to stress too much because, you know, I already did this. I already know the result. I already know what happened. So, um, but it was cool. It was cool just to be able to sit back and watch yourself and I guess kind of like the third person because, you know, I went through it. I did the fight. I know the result, but nobody else does. And you, know, you get to see everybody watching, and you get the live reaction, just like it would be if you was there fighting live. So it's, it was pretty cool. That's awesome to hear. Now, the, the, obviously, the outcome of this is both those awesome watch parties, but also this fight coming up on August 19th. You're fighting Austin Hubbard, a guy who, you know, seemingly you sparred for for weeks at a time. Uh, now you're super familiar with him, but you also get mashed up on your trip back to the UFC. So wh what is it like knowing that your trip this time is against, first of all, another high-level guy, but also a high-level guy that you're intimately familiar with? Um, You know, I like it because I, I feel like Austin's such a good guy, man. He's such a nice guy. Now, don't get me wrong. I A loss would devastate me and, you know, bring me back to the drawing boards and, and really – get me down but if something was to happen and Austin was to win I would be happy for Austin you know because I know how hard Austin works and that was the same thing in the Jason fight I felt like I felt the same way about Jason so it kind of takes that pressure off your shoulders and you're just going out there to have fun and I feel like that's what this fight is it's just you know I'm not worried about nothing I'm just going out to have fun I'm bringing my wife I'm bringing my kids everybody's going to get to show up in Boston the TD Garden and we get to fight on a big pay-per-view. I love it. Now, I usually like to end these things with the uh, the ultimate question, which is, how do you see this fight ending come August 19th? Um, you know, Austin's super tough, super durable, but I have to fight like I fought against Jason, and I think I can I can put Austin away. Um, now, I can tell you it's not going to be easy. It's going to be I'm going to have to grit through a lot of things. I'm going to have to put a lot into it. But, man, I, I have the ability to finish anybody in the world. So uh, I think I can definitely get the finish. I'm, I'm looking to get maybe a stoppage in the second or third round. and and we'll, But we'll see how it goes. 
All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Ben Kerhalba, who fights Austin Hubbard at UFC 292, the lightweight side of the Ultimate Fighter finale. And that fight, once again, is on August 19th. Kurt, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Kurt Hollibaugh. And once again, I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland. Join now by my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, there was a UFC this past weekend. It was at the Apex. It was somewhat maybe uneventful, but I got to ask you, Twister, the third ever Twister in <laughs> UFC history. Uh, how cool is it that we got to see one? And how cool is it that that guy, Damon Blackshear, is also now fighting this weekend at UFC 292 as well? Uh, so yeah, uh, I love it all around. I'm a huge fan of submissions, obviously in the UFC, and I'm an even huger fan of rare submissions. So getting the third twister was very cool to me. I also really like it as an option to be quite honest with you in MMA, because once you have the back, it's something that doesn't feel so, uh, dependent on not having gloves. Like there are a couple of submissions that just become a little harder when you have the gloves on as opposed to bare hands. And the twister to me is something you can do in gloves. It's not as impacted. So I love the twister. I love seeing it um, as long as the person taps to it. They don't like, you know, destroy their spinal cord. Uh, so that part was cool. And the quick turnaround is always cool too. He didn't take a lot of damage. So there's no real risk here. He's in fight shape. He's ready to go. I love it when guys do this quick turnaround, given that they haven't taken a ton of damage or they're not, you know, endangering themselves in any way. Yeah, and I'll say two things on that. First of all, I do love the quick turnaround, especially because he was supposed to get a higher level opponent than Jose Johnson in the first place. He loses his opponent. This is his chance to get a step up. Mario Batista, a huge name, getting a fill in for Cody Garbrandt on a pay-per-view card right after that. That's huge for his career, and especially a guy who took a little bit longer to get to the UFC. So I'm happy for him there. And then to your point about getting to see the twister and thinking about it as being a good MMA submission, I also think it's one of those fun MMA submissions in terms of safety because, you know, a lot of the ones that we like from the grappling world or the jiu-jitsu world or whatever are fun to watch in jiu-jitsu competitions. You know, take a heel hook, for instance. I love watching a good heel hook in a jiu-jitsu competition, but you're going to get punched in the head in MMA. You're going to get punched in the head really freaking hard, and we've seen it time and time again where people die for a knee bar or die for a heel hook or, you know, die for something like that. And they eat a bunch and either let it go or then wind up, you know, kind of woozy and wind up losing the fight as a result. The twister, you're, you're mostly safe where you're at. Like, they, they, you can't hit somebody with a punch from there, at least not with any kind of, you know, real steam. So uh, I love that he went for it. I love that he was diligent with it. I love that uh, he was quick with it. Um, always fun to see one that's only happened three times in the history of the UFC. Agree completely. Well, we're going to go for it ourselves here with our favorite segment on the show, Fights, Dogs, Parlays. This time it's a pay-per-view. It's UFC 292. It's a banger of a card. I'm excited to talk about some of these fights. So let's get into it. But before we get into it, I want to ask you if anyone sponsors this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. Absolutely. Fights, Dogs, and Parlays is brought to you by Cutbet. Hey guys, I'm sure you have the same problem as we do and that it's hard to keep up with all the different bets you've made against your friends. Who's paid? Who hasn't? What were the terms? Well, we came across a cool new app called Cut that formalizes the whole process for you so that you don't have to check the notes on your phone or scroll endlessly through your group chat in order to find those bets. It's essentially a better version for Venmo, except just for betting with interactive features that make it more social, tracks all your bets, allows you to create your own lines, see your records against your friends, and so much more. And perhaps most importantly, 
it ensures that you get paid when you do win. So go check them out at cut.com or on Instagram at cutbet. That's K-U-T-T. And again, my favorite part of it is that, you know, you don't have to worry about the VIG. If we've got plus 100, plus 100, we don't have to worry about those negative 150, negative 120 lines that you see at the book. Instead, you're both getting the best odds possible. So make sure, once again, check them out, cut.com. All right. We got a fun main event here. I certainly hope it might be the end of, in my opinion, an overhyped fighter, but uh, maybe he'll shock the world this weekend. Let's see. Aljamain Sterling is the bantamweight champion. He has actually defended three times in a row now since uh, beating Piotr Jan back in March of 2021. That was via DQ by illegal knee. A lot of controversy. Everyone said he was like a paper champion. Well, he proved the doubters wrong, came back, beat Piotr Jan, then beat TJ Dillashaw. Of course, Dillashaw was injured in that, but then beat Henry Cejudo. A lot of people regard him as one of the smaller fighter greatest of all times. So I think uh, Aljo, who we've always been a huge fan of on the show, has really gone out and proven himself, whether by hook or by crook. He has beaten three former champions in a row now, and you can never take that away from him. Uh, I know TJ was injured. I know two of them were split decisions. I didn't necessarily think they were controversial decisions, though. I think he won both those fights. So I'm a huge Aljo fan, and he finds himself a minus 265 favorite to a UFC marketing darling in Sean O'Malley. Sean O'Malley in the UFC has never been beaten. There's just one no contest, an accidental eye poke. Munoz was unable to continue. Uh, he, he lost to, he lost to Marlon Vera in there too. Oh, you are don't correct. Forget, don't forget the Marlon Vera loss. You are correct. <laughs> you are correct. So actually, let's take it then from his debut on the Dana White Contender Series. He is uh, three, six, seven. So he's seven, one, and one in the UFC. If I'm reading that correctly, that's not said He has four performance of the nights, two fight of the nights. And his strength of competition is absolute dog poop. He's really not beaten anyone other than if you want to give me Eddie Wineland, I'll give you that. Eddie Wineland could be a tough fight. And he beat Piotr Jan, but via very controversial split decision that I'm not necessarily sure he won that fight. And that is why he finds himself a massive dog here at plus 215. I think he's a marketing creation by the UFC. We're finally going to get to see it this weekend. Who you got? Yeah, I, I think so, too. And it just goes to show you how one-sided I think this fight probably is, being that, you know, Sean O'Malley, despite being hyped by so many people, you know, having probably that casual money come in because people love him, all of that kind of stuff, he still finds himself over a 2-1 to one underdog. That, to me, proves just how much of an advantage Aljamain Sterling has here. And I think we're going to see it in the grappling department because, you know, Aljamain Sterling has taken everybody down, everybody down. You know, he, he's a better grappler than Henry Cejudo. He's a better grappler than TJ Dillashaw. You know, like, look what he did to Corey Sanhagen. Corey Sanhagen, a guy who, without Aljamain Sterling in the world, probably would have been champion by now. Had close fights with all the top guys in the division. So fun to watch striking. Beat the ever-living hell out of Marlon Vera recently. And what did he do against Aljamain Sterling? Oh, he lost in about 60 seconds to like one of the best rear naked chokes I've ever seen. Aljamain Sterling's just so good on the ground. And 
while Sean O'Malley has got some like submission skills, we've we've seen him. You know, somebody tried to tell me that you know his grappling competition with Takanori Gomi should count for something. It's not the same level, and he's a striker, and he's a striker who knows that he's going to have to be defending takedown attempt after takedown attempt after takedown attempt today. Uh, and I think this is is a foregone conclusion. I think this is Aljamain Sterling. I think he's going to submit him, and I think he's going to do it pretty damn fast. Yeah, so I think O'Malley has uh, some some good power. I think he has a lanky body that could be tough to deal with. But you know what? Funk Master is the master of funk, so I'm not even sure how that necessarily will play out. But I could see Sean O'Malley having a moment or two in the striking department against Aljo. Other than that, when I think about complete mixed martial artists, that to me favors Aljo. Wherever the fight goes, I think Aljo is better than Sean O'Malley. And for that reason, I'm picking Aljo. I agree with you completely. Um, and I'm just looking forward to uh, potentially the end of a hype train that I was never on the on the trip for. I had never signed up for. And I hope Aljo puts an end to it this weekend. Do you know, do you know what else is a real interesting point of this that I'm just going to throw in there real quick? Everybody talks about the length of Sean O'Malley. Do you know what his reach advantage is in this fight? Uh, are they even or what? One one inch reach advantage for Sean mm -hmm. O'Malley. And and people forget that, that Aljamain Sterling is that long, too, because he's a little shorter. Uh, but, man, he's got some long arms, too. So I think that's going to be trouble. I like that. Uh, Weili Zhang has looked nothing short of dominant in the UFC, unless she's fighting Rose Namajunas since taking back-to-back -back losses, one via head kick KO and one via split decision. Uh, so those two losses to Rose Nami Yunus back in 2021, she's wheeled, reeled off wins with a KO over former champ Joanna Jan Jacek and a rear naked choke over former champ Carla Esparza. So again, if she's not fighting Rose Nami Yunus, Weili Zhang has looked like an absolute monster. Amanda Lemos has her work cut out for her this weekend. Lemos is on a two-fight losing streak since losing to Jessica Andrade. She's reeled off wins against Michelle Waterson and Marina Rodriguez, just coming off this TKO win over Marina Rodriguez back in November of 2022. But Lemos finds herself a plus 240 dog here, and for good reason. Weili Zhang, a minus 330 favorite. Who you got? You, you got to go favorite here. And, and for a bunch of reasons, but the biggest one for me is you think about the ways that Rose Namajunas gave Weili Zhang trouble. It's because she fights long. She uses her kicks well. Uh, obviously, the head kick particularly well. But even in the decision, she used her kicks well and her distance well and sort of frustrated the shorter, stockier, stronger Weili Zhang. That's just not how Amanda Lemos fights. Uh, Amanda Lemos wants to get in your face. She wants to try to land big bombs. And the problem is when you do that with Weili Zhang, it winds up looking like the fight Weili Zhang had with Jessica Andrade, where Jessica Andrade tried to bull rush her and get in her face. And she was like, that's cute. I'm way stronger than you because there isn't a straw weight in the world that is stronger than Weili Zhang. And that's a fact. So like once you get in the clinch with her, unless you were a incredible wrestler or really good at boxing your way out you're gonna get hit you're gonna get tired you're gonna get outworked and she has got an amazing gas tank we saw it in the Ioana Jan Jacek decision win um and we've obviously seen her power as well now does Lemos have a puncher's chance maybe but even at these odds I'm not real interested in that
I uh, I agree completely, so I'm not going to add anything, actually. <laughs> I'm taking Whaley Zong all day. Uh, Marlon Vera is a minus 185 favorite. Pedro Muniz, a plus 155 dog. Marlon Vera, uh, who's really been at the game for a long time now, is coming off a uh, loss to Corey Sanhagen, but he had reeled off four wins in a row before that with wins over Frankie Edgar, Davey Grant, Rob Font, Dominic Cruz. So he's four and one in his last five fights with two performance of the night bonuses, one fight of the night bonus. And this is a man, Marlon Vera, who made his UFC debut all the way back at UFC 180. So he predates UFC 200. He made his debut in November of 2014. Um, Pedro Munoz is coming off a win over Chris Gutierrez. There was that no contest that we already mentioned before that to Sean O'Malley. And he had lost to Jose Aldo and Dominic Cruz before that. So he is one, two, and one in his last four. He finds himself as the plus 155 dog here. Vera, the minus 185 favorite. Who you got? I'm actually going to go with Pedro Munoz as a slight underdog here. I think he's got a lot of weapons that give somebody like uh, Marlon Vera a lot of trouble. You know, you mentioned uh, the Marlon Vera loss to Corey Sandhagen. One of the things that happened in that fight so often that gave him lots of trouble was that he got his legs ripped. He got his legs ripped pretty repeatedly by Corey Sandhagen, particularly in the first three rounds. And I think it really slowed him down and made it hard for him to work. And the thing about Pedro Munoz... Pedro Munoz is a dude who works so good at the legs. We saw him do it to Sean O'Malley. Like, while, while that fight goes down as a no contest due to an eye poke and everybody was like, oh, Pedro Munoz wanted a way out. Again, thank you, Sean O'Malley. Hype for that one. Pedro Munoz won that first round on all of the judges' scorecards. The judges scored the first round for Pedro Munoz against Sean O'Malley. And here it is. We're talking about him being an underdog and the other one fighting for a title. So I actually think Pedro Munoz's hands can get it done here. Uh, I'll also say this. I know Marlon Vera's got good submission defense, but the, the guillotine choke from Pedro Munoz when he does get you stunned or he does get you to shoot is really solid too. So I think he's got enough weapons here that I'm interested in him at the, the dog price. All right. Uh, let's get to our official dog of the week, though, and it's Kurt Hollibaugh, plus 150. Let's hear it. Yeah, friend of the show, Kurt Hollibaugh, will be fighting in the Ultimate Fighter finale on this show, and uh, I like him against Austin Hubbard. I think the improvements we've seen from Kurt Hollibaugh since we last saw him in the UFC, they're really apparent, uh, both in his submission ability, what he did to Lee Hammond in that fight on the uh, Ultimate Fighter, and also just like his patient striking against Jason Knight was outstanding. He put an absolute two-round beatdown on Jason Knight. And I think if he keeps that same patience here against Austin Hubbard, Hubbard's going to have a lot of problems dealing with both his pace, his pressure, and his his precision. So all of those things worry me against Austin Hubbard. Um, and to pay, you know, you would wind up paying negative 175 for Hubbard. That's crazy to me. So to get the price you can on Hollibaugh, I say get that while it's hot. Uh, speaking of what's hot, how about our parlay to play? Brad Tavares, a minus 260. Andre Petrosky, a minus 240. Pair them together. It does get you plus 100 odds. Let's hear it. Yeah, so not the best odds I could find, but these odds on this card are all kind of wide. So I, I like starting with Petrosky here because, look, Gerald Mearshart just lost a fight to Joe Pfeiffer, 
who is the training partner in fights almost exactly the same as Andre Petrovsky. So basically, we've already seen this fight. Uh, may maybe Pfeiffer hits a little harder on the feet, but they both have that like suffocating top game, you know, that you come to expect from a Daniel Gracie guy. And and that's kind of bad news for Mirshar because less Mirshar can out grapple you a little bit. It's not like this dude's out striking you any anytime any real soon. So uh, give me Petrovsky on the front end of that. And then this play on Brad Tavares is more of a fade on Chris Weidman. Like, I know everybody's saying, like, oh, he's looking great coming back from the leg injury, and I've seen videos of him training. But here's the thing about Chris Weidman. We think about him having left with that knee injury, or the, the shin injury, rather, but it was bad before that for Chris Weidman. Chris Weidman was already on a downward trend. Look, he got knocked out by Dominic Reyes, who hasn't won since. He got knocked out by Jacare Souza, not a guy we know for knocking people out. Gegard Mousasi had recently knocked him out. Yoel Romero had knocked him out. Luke Rockhold had knocked him out. And that was like five of his last seven fights before he had fought Uriah Hall and wound up snapping his leg. So for me... I get that everybody likes the story behind Chris Weidman here, but look, Brad Tavares, tough dude to put away, impossible dude to take down, and that really just leaves Chris Weidman with a very small set of window uh, to beat him. So I, I think Brad Tavares is probably just going to put a pace on him, stuff the takedowns, uh, and win kind of a boring decision here. But it won't be boring if you put those two together and you get plus 100. I'll tell you what else isn't boring. Our show, we're having a party here, so let's keep it going. What should we do next, Gumby? Well, we're going to transition now to my interview with Matteo Vogel, who is fighting on the fourth episode of Dana White's Contender Series in about 10 days. So we're going to get to all that great content for you right now. All right, and joining me today is Matteo Vogel, who fights Timothy Kamba at Dana White's Contender Series week four. That fight is on August 29th. So, Matteo, I wanted to start here. You know, you get the call that everybody wants. Everybody who's not in the UFC wants that call for either the short notice fight or the Contender Series. What was your reaction like when you did finally get that call to uh, to perform in front of the boss? Uh, I, you know what? It feels like it feels like it fits, honestly. Like uh, I was waiting on an opportunity like that. It's been a long time coming, and uh, you know what? I honestly expected it after uh, after my last victory, doing what I said, and just beating a guy at that level of experience. I, I just kind of knew that the call was coming. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I was going to ask you about that, too, because, you know, a lot of people in these these larger regional promotions, the LFAs, the CFFCs, you know, and, and like you're up there fighting in Canada, one of the biggest promotions as well. You get the belt and it's like almost automatic that you go to one of these shows. But you, you actually defended it a couple of times. Was it surprising that you had to kind of go through that kind of ringer for it? I wouldn't say it was surprising necessarily. Like, um, you know, I, I won the title, obviously, but uh... I think maybe what needed to be done was exactly what I requested. I, like I had been beating guys. Um, I've beaten a lot of good guys in my career so far. Uh, but the, the first two guys that I, that I had the belt against were other young up-and-comers. I think I just needed to show that I could do it against a veteran. You know what I mean? And I, and I really did that. I managed to finish the guy. And the guy has 27 fights. You know what I mean? So I think maybe that was what, the, what was necessary to really show that I belong at that next level and solidify that. And you mentioned that those fights against high-level opponents. You fought guys like, you know, DeMond Blackshear is fighting in the UFC next week. And, you know, Garrett Armfield, who's fighting in the, the UFC, I, I think right before your Contender Series fight, if I'm not mistaken. I think so, yeah. Yeah, What what is it like for you to have, you know, these guys who you've, you know, rubbed elbows with and one of which you've beat in the UFC showing you that, you know, you're already that level? Well, I've, I, that's the thing is that I've known it for a long time and, 
rather than I'm not rather than be upset or bitter about anything, I'm actually thankful for it because I think it's just a testament to uh, to how good I really am and how I've been at this level for a long time. You know, I'm not in a rush uh, necessarily to, or I, I wasn't like, not that I'm not in a rush, but like, I'm not upset about any of that. Like those, those fights for me, like Garrett Armfield, DeMond Blackshear, those were, those were growing experiences for me. You know, even though I came away with a victory, um, it just, th those fights, you know, were really career making fights for me and they, and they tweaked my game in such a way to make me just that much more mature and that much more ready to fight in the UFC. You know, I also have a the one and only victory over Siri, who's also fighting in the Contender Series right after me. You know what I mean? He's nine and one, and I'm his only one. So I think it's just, I'm almost proud that these are crown jewels for me. I'm proud of like the of the caliber of guys that I've beaten, and I and I think if you really want to fight in the UFC, you have to be ready to fight the best. You know, you should there, there shouldn't be any cans on your record if you're looking to fight in the UFC. There shouldn't be all these guys with negative records. You know what I mean? Like I've I've beaten. I think there's one guy left on my record with a negative record out of ten fights. That's pretty impressive. Now you mentioned in there too, you know, not being in a rush, not feeling like you had to get there quicker or slower, you know, anything like that. It'll come when it comes, sort of. But at a certain point, when you had fought in those guys with, you know, like you said, short records because they're up and coming prospects, like you were. Did you, did you start to, like, demand that you needed somebody a little bit bigger? Like, what, what eventually led you to getting that, you know, that title defense against the guy, like you said, with 20, 28 fights on his career? Well, I called him. That's the thing is that I called out for. I said, you know, give me somebody with some experience. Give me somebody who's, who's tested their mettle. The last guy, he's beaten UFC vets. You know what I mean? He's been in there with some of the best. So, like, uh, yeah, that's I, – I called it out, and I, and I – exactly like i did i knocked it right out of the park you absolutely did now I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this upcoming fight too because it's a guy who you, you might already be familiar with I, I was worrying wondering because i was looking at that cffc card you were on and he actually fought just before you and blackshear on that card yeah where, where did you get a chance to see him did you, did you run into him what, what was it like knowing that you know hey maybe i already know this guy a little bit yeah I, I, you know, I've seen him before. Um, we fought on the same card. You, I know he likes to bring it. I know he's a, he's a fast, hungry kid. But, uh, you know, I, based on what I've seen, I, I think, like anything, man, I'm, I'm not gonna shy away from any challenge. I'm ready to, I'm ready to rock. I'm ready to take any man's head off at this point, whether it's Timmy or whether it's, you know, whether it's the top level guys in the UFC. I don't really care, man. I love it. Now, before we get to talking too, too much about that fight, I do always like to ask this question, especially of fighters who have unique nicknames. I'm a guy who loves a good MMA nickname. And, yeah. uh, you know, Car Carapato, I, I come to understand, is translated to the tick. So tell That's me a right. little bit. Tell me a little bit of how you became the tick. I've been, gra well, I've been grappling since I was a kid, right? So I've been training since I was really, really young. Um, and uh, through over the years, I got... I got to train with a number of Brazilians as well. And I was this little kid and I would take everybody's back and nobody could escape my, uh, my notorious back control, which is where I have a massive percentage of my finishes from is all from the back position. Right. But um, the fact is like I take everyone's back and nobody can get out of my back control. So they all started calling me Cajapato. They all started saying that I'm stuck like a tick. <laughs> and uh, the nickname is stuck with me. And so is the style. 
I dig it. I dig it. Now, let, let's talk about how that style particularly matches up with Kamba because he's a guy who likes to mix it up on the ground a little bit too. Shoots a lot of takedowns. Do you expect him to bring that kind of style against you, being that you are so well-versed on the ground? He might. Uh, like I've said in the past, I don't come in here with a lot of presumptions about my opponents. I watch them. I study them. I learn. I've got a very high fight IQ against anyone. Um, but I'm not going in there with pre presuming that someone's going to just do X, Y, Z. This is a fight, and as we know, fight math doesn't add up. The way, the way that you've seen him deal with somebody else may not even be the way that he approaches me. So I'm, I'm in there with an open mind and like, this is combat. Combat is chaotic. And you know, combat is, a, is different every time. Like I think honestly, it comes down to, to execution and, uh, and that's going to be the deciding factor. You know, uh -huh. I know that Timmy's well-rounded, uh, but I, I think in a lot of areas there, there are things where there are things where he comes up short against me. I like that. Now, you, you, you're obviously a very cerebral guy when it comes to planning and fighting. You can tell just by talking to you. I, I've heard a lot of fighters talk about the different ways they watch film. You know, they watch it before training camp and then, you know, kind of tune it out after that. They watch it with coaches. They watch it on their own. What, what's your approach to watching film when it comes to uh, to preparing for a guy like Timothy Kamba? I do watch a lot of footage. I like to watch footage of the wins and the losses. And, uh, yeah, I, I like to see tendencies. I like to see what people do in certain situations. Uh, I also like to visualize and, and watch and see people's mentalities at the same time. I feel like I'm a real good read when it comes to people's faces and people's uh, reactions to stress, so to speak. So I, I really do like to watch footage, but at the same time, I've, I've watched footage and then when I fought, it was a totally different ball game against some individuals, right? So uh, I go in there with an open mind and I go in there mainly just focused on myself. And what I'm going to do. And that's what seems to be what's prevailed for the past 13 years for me. Well, I love that mentality. And obviously, it is clearly working for you. So I usually like to end these things with the big question. How do you see this one ending come August 29th when you step in there with Timothy Kamba? I feel I'm going to finish him before the end of the second round. And we, we got any specific predictions or are we we keeping it loose? We keeping it loose. But I'm, <laughs> I'm coming out with a finish. And I'm taking that contract right from Dana, brother. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This has been Mateo Vogel, who fights Timothy Kamba at Dana White Contender Series Week 4. Once again, that fight is on August 29th. Mateo, yes, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, brother. And that's going to do it for another episode of the Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We would not have a show without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsors, Game Up and CutBet, and remind you guys that you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Top Turtle MMA in both of those locations. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gubby Vreeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will catch you then.